Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This morning we go back to the book of 1 Corinthians because I want closure. We've been studying it forever. I think this is our 84th sermon on it. And so, all right, let's turn and read the Word of God, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning with verse 1, and reading through verse 12. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them, excuse me, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. So that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren." But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. This is the word of the Lord. Now we begin this last chapter, uh, and it's the end things. We're dealing here with the final matters that the Apostle Paul is going to treat in this uh, letter and of course, as is typical with letters, you know, you have, you know, bring, bring my cloak, bring my books, bring my manuscripts, say hi to so-and-so. Um, the book of Romans, it goes on at great length. Uh, you kind of twice come to the end of the book of Romans as, as you read it. Well, the Apostle Paul in this last chapter is dealing with incidentals, not things that are unimportant, but things that aren't of the essence of the reason that he wrote the letter. And he begins this last section by talking about the collection for the saints. Now, uh, notice it says in verse 1, concerning the collection for the saints, and then he says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So he speaks of the saints individually, but it's clear that the money goes from church to church, okay? From church to church. He spoke to the churches of Galatia, this do you also, and he's writing to a church. Now I want to make the point that this is not the way modern missions works. 
Modern missions does not have money going from one church to another. And because of that, there are a lot of problems with missions today, where instead of it being under the authority of the local church, it's under the authority of a business corporate structure. And there are all kinds of problems related to this. Uh, There are problems of oversight. We had a a case a few years ago where we had a a missionary family that had been supported by this church for a number of years, and all of a sudden, in the communications to us, we were told that their ministry was going to change. Actually, it was changed. And uh, the new ministry they were going into, we did not believe had a biblical basis. It seemed to be leaving behind uh, a commitment to the church and a commitment to evangelization. Now, of course, there are always people who work in missions who don't do the work of church planning and evangelization. There are people who do the work of bookkeeping for the missionaries, people who do the work of doctoring. Um, But in this particular case, the work that they were going into was a work that none of our officers of this church approved of. So we set up a time to talk to the mission missionary, and we had a Skype call. It went on for a couple of hours. There were a number of pastors and elders in the room, and we said to him, why did you do this all of a sudden? Why didn't you talk to us? Why didn't you get our input as to this decision? And the missionary said, well, it was clear the Holy Spirit was leading it. And we said, well, how was it clear to you that the Holy Spirit was leading it? And he said, well, the, the, the president of our missions and, and some of the other executives were agreed that this is what I should do. And so here we were, not, here we were just a church. And it was clear that his idea of what the local church's role in missions was did not include authority at all. The authority was all in the missions. Now, Because I am the way I am, which is twisted, I start thinking about this and I think, oh my goodness, you know, can we please today stop authority from moving from the institutions that God has ordained to institutions that are, are, are arrogating to themselves the authority that God hasn't given them? usurping authority. Can we stop the usurpation of authority? Now, some of you, I hope, know what I'm talking about. The usurpation of authority is what's going on with federal government over states and their governments in America today. It's, this, it's, it's, it's justified by slavery and the Civil War, but the people that were fighting the Civil War uh, weren't fighting so that we could have abortion and homosexual marriage forced down the throats of every state in the Union. They didn't think they were fighting for that. And so if you look at what's going on in America today, you see in America we have the family is always worried, if it's Christian family today, about child protective services. Now, there's a place for child protective services. But child protective services is the big brother that Christian homes think about all the time in how they raise their children. They know if they go into a, uh, a doctor's office and have an unexplained bruise, CPS can be at their house just like that. And more and more, the church is under the authority of the state, and the church has no choice over what the church does, right? 
And so this last week, an elder and I were talking about how to handle the, the duty to report child abuse in the church. And what the state is doing is saying, look, you don't have any freedom to talk to your elders and pastors about this. Just like that, you're to go and report it. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, I hate to break it to you. Okay, you ready? But a lot of the things you do with your children in your home, I don't approve of. I mean, is that news to you? And if I were to go on and tell you what I don't approve of, there would be some real squirming in the seats. And you say, oh, no, surely not in this family. I say, well, have you ever had your parents tell you that you're abusing their grandchildren? I mean, your parents tell you that all the time. They don't approve of this. They do approve of that. They don't approve of that. All right. Now, why am I talking about the usurpation of authority? It's going on everywhere. If you read the book on fatherhood called Daddy Tried, you'll see I have a place in there where I say to you as fathers, you absolutely must defend your authority against the civil magistrate, usurping the authority of the father and mother in the home. Okay, this is not a complicated thing. But this is what has happened with missions. Missions has eviscerated the local church of authority so that anybody who gives money to a mission society immediately feels holy because they did it. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter what the missions does with the money, just I feel holy because I gave money to missions. Now, the missions can have missionaries that go out and do things that are absolutely antithetical to the well-being of the church that have really nothing to do with the church, but we're absolved of any responsibility because we gave money to missions. Listen, you look at the New Testament, it's filled with an account of the accountability of one church to another, of the love of one church for another, of the building of the church, and there were added to their number that day, right? You recognize that statement from Acts, all right? Christ died for the church. And nobody should ever make any apology for the authority of the local church. Now, why is the government putting us under such pressure to report anything that smells of child abuse to us in the local church? Why? Well, the reason is that the Roman Catholic Church completely betrayed its responsibility. And so if we get up and we argue that, no, 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 we are being faithful and protecting the children of this church, all right, And the government says, oh yeah, just like the Roman Catholics did. Do you see, we never start justifying our rebellion by pointing to the bad exercise of authority as justification for our rebellion. But can I please get into your brains that because a hatchet has been used to kill a grandmother doesn't mean we should outlaw hatchets. And the fact is, authority is not getting destroyed. What's happening is it's all being shifted over to the federal government. There's no less authority. It's just that the federal government says, we're the only ones that get to abuse it. Okay? Now, why am I bringing this up here? Because I want you to be very careful to notice how central the church is to money in the New Testament. It doesn't go from an individual to a nonprofit parachurch organization. What does it go? It goes from the church 
through the officers, to the officers, to the individual. It goes from the church to the church. Okay. Now, that should have application. I am not saying that there shouldn't be mission societies. There shouldn't be parachurch organizations. But people, we have to fight for a restoration of the authority of the local church in the giving and receiving of funds in the name of Jesus. So somewhere in there, in the, in the clash between those realities of parachurch and the reality of the authority of the church that Scripture is very clear in showing, as that clashes, it's principial and it clashes, there we're going to begin to restore the proper ordering of the church. Okay? And it's money that's at stake here concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, why does the Apostle Paul get the right to direct any churches? It's because he's an officer. Yes, there are officers in the church. They exercise authority. Get over it. Okay, it's what they do. The Apostle Paul has not delegated this to the deacons and said, I'm too holy to have anything to do with money. <laughs> you know, He says, listen, I directed the churches in Galatia, now I'm directing you. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. You do what I told the churches in Galatia to do. On the first day, this is what he's told them to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So the reason he wants them to do what he wants them to do, what he tells them to do, is so that something doesn't happen. What is it he doesn't want to happen? So that what? So that no collections be made when I come. Why doesn't he want collections to be made when he comes? We don't know, but Calvin says haste makes waste. He doesn't use those words, but that's what he says. In other words, things like this that are important should not be done hastily. All right? They should be done with consideration, with care, with decision-making. I think probably there's another reason it's done, and that is that the Apostle Paul doesn't want it to be open to emotional manipulation, and he doesn't want to be thought of as the dude that shows up and you've got to empty your pockets. He wants you making a cold sort of, uh, objective, sort of uh, calculated decision about what you give. Why? Well, because the principle in 2 Corinthians is what? Not under compulsion. Because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You know, you can give grudgingly in the heat of the moment when somebody's guilt-tripping you. You know, but if you're setting it aside first day of every week, it's pretty hard to be bitter every first day of the week. You know, that generally is from a cheerful heart, okay? Now, notice it's the first day of the week. This is because we believe that this was the day that the first Christians set aside to do their worship, all right? It's not that they're to bring it to worship the first day of the week. It's very clear that each home, each household, each head of family is to set the money aside each week, all right? But it is an act of devotion. It makes sense that it's done on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, all right? Now, he says that each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. So this is another principle. 
The principle is, as God gives us more to be stewards of, that money is to be viewed as God's money. If you prosper, set aside the money, all right? Now, I've been, you know, well, forget that. Then he says, verse 3, when I arrive, whomever you may approve. When I arrive, whomever you may approve. Now, what's going on there and why does it matter? He's speaking to the church. Whomever you approve. Can you imagine Benny Hinn saying that? (laughs) Are you serious? At the beginning of every crusade, he stands up and looks at the elders of all the local churches represented and says, whatever money comes to me today, whomever you approve, we'll give it to Jerusalem. Ah, all right. In other words, the Apostle Paul submits himself to the local church. He's an apostle, and he submits himself to the local church. Because he says, whomever you may approve. Then he says, I will send them, whoever they approve of, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So do you see how the Apostle Paul really, in everything he does about money, he's making himself sort of extraneous. You know, he's not important. He's saying, you guys set aside what you decide, then whomever you approve, I'll send them, and then they can go, and if I'm there, they will go with me. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Now, we've now come to a place in this text where what we have is a travelogue. We have an itinerary. He says, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you. Now, why does he say so much about his travelogue or his itinerary? I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why go through all that? We don't know, but we suspect it's because the Apostle Paul wants to make it very clear to them that he is not afraid of seeing them, that he is not withdrawing from intimacy with them, that he is looking forward to being with them. And that the reason that he won't come for a while is that he doesn't want to make it a quick visit. Think about the letter he's just gotten done writing. It's an intense letter. It is filled with rebuke, admonishment, discipline. It names names. It's just like, it's a loud, loud piece of work he sent to them, right? And so you can imagine that they would say, and we have other places in the letters to the Corinthians, where he does make reference to the sort of diminished role that they think that he has. And so he's saying to them, look, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. Macedonia is Thessalonica. Macedonia is a place where uh, he has had a lot of blessings, Philippi. He says, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing. In other words, not for a short time, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. All right? But I will remain in Ephesus 
until Pentecost. Now, this is another interesting point. For why? This is the reason he's going to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. This is the theme of the Apostle Paul's life, right? You all know this. The Apostle Paul is constantly having wide doors opening for the gospel in his ministry. Why? Well, it's not purpose here. It's not because he has many adversaries, but those two parts are tied together in such a way that it's very hard to separate them here, isn't it? Again, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, really, think about this. Why would it be that the Apostle Paul would connect a wide door of service being opened to him and many adversaries? Why? Stop and ask yourself, what happened in Ephesus? What was it that happened in Ephesus? There were riots, right? Right? You all remember the riots. Why were there riots? There were riots because the Apostle Paul was calling in the name of Christ for the people of Ephesus, the Ephesians, to do what? He was calling them to turn from their idols. So the ministry of the Apostle Paul was to go into a city and to take its statues and monuments. All right, are you all with me? Statues and monuments and books and do what with them? Get rid of them. And it was the work of many of the merchants who were richest in Ephesus to do what? To build monuments to those statues and those idols. And so when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, what happened? All of a sudden, the statues and monuments and idols became less important, and the merchant trade in statues and idols and monuments went down. The entire economy of Ephesus was placed in jeopardy by the Apostle Paul's preaching of the gospel. Do you all see this? And so the result of the Apostle Paul being in Ephesus, what's being spoken of right here, wide open doors to me, much opposition, many adversaries, wide open opportunity, many adversaries. The result of the Apostle Paul doing his work was what? It was that the merchant's business upon which the city's economy was based was placed in jeopardy. Okay? Okay? And so what did they do? They had a riot, and for two hours, what did they do? (laughs) For two hours, they screamed, yelled, shouted, 
Great is the diversity of the Bloomingtonians. Great is the pluralism of the Bloomingtonians. Great is the gay pride of the Bloomingtonians. Great are the transvestites of the Bloomingtonians. Great are the transsexuals. Great are the transitioning. Great are the homosexuals. Great are the gays. Great are the lesbians. Great is the diversity of Bloomington. For two hours, they screamed it. Great is the diversity of Bloomington. But the problem was the entire economy of Ephesus was built upon diversity. All the economics of Bloomington were completely bound up with diversity. It was what was worshipped, it was what was taught, it was what had festivals, it was, it was Bloomington. You could not separate diversity in Bloomington. And so there was a riot, and everybody was screaming, great is the diversity of the Bloomingtonians. And they started in the middle of the farmer's market. And everybody that was screaming drove pre-I. And they all wore Birkenstocks. Now listen, don't you, don't you dare say this is about me, don't you dare. Because I drive a Prius and wear Birkenstocks. Do you get my point? Come on. Great is the diversity of the Bloomingtonians. Why does Bloomington look down its nose at Purdue? And if you don't know that, you're dead. Bloomington exists to look down its nose at Purdue. Right? Does everybody know this? You know? Great is the diversity of Bloomington. And great is Mitch Daniels of the Purdue. Right? He's the president up there. And what's he doing? Fiscal conservatism. He's damping it down. He hasn't raised tuition in seven years. That's what Purdue's about. They design things. The things don't kill you when you use them. And the cost goes down. But in Bloomington, you know, great is the diversity of Bloomington. And the Apostle Paul says what? The Apostle Paul says this. He says, for a wide door, verse 9, for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. God has ordained it in such a way that the cross bears fruit. That the cross is fruitful. That the cross is what's successful. God has ordained it that suffering is the path of success. And we as Christians had better get used to it. It is impossible to live in Bloomington. In Bloomington, it is impossible to live in Bloomington and not suffer 
for the name of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, it's impossible. And I mean the evidence of it I typically hear about. You don't hear about it as much. But I hear about it all the time, right before this service started. I had a man who just simply spoke up to somebody that he was working with, and immediately that man was rebuked for speaking up in a way that was helpful spiritually. In his nine-to-five job, in his, in his gig. If I asked you to raise your hands, my guess is that probably half this congregation could raise their hands and tell the ways that they have suffered persecution because of Jesus. Yeah, we always have ways we justify our persecution of other people. And I could tell you story after story from professors, from administrative people, from grad students, from undergrads, from local school teachers, physicians, flunkies. I could tell you story after story in this church of people who have suffered for the name of Jesus. I'm not talking about people who have been busybodies. I'm saying people who have conscientiously confessed their faith in a difficult situation and have been harmed because of it, okay? And my question to you is, why is it that we're so upset about Obergefell, and why is it that we're so upset about the transvestite, transsexual uh, um, celebration at the library for the kids? Why? Well, a lot of it is that we want to defend the children. But you know what a lot of it is? A lot of it is that we know that we are going to suffer for Jesus, and we don't want to. We want to see restored in America the safety of the conscience that the pilgrims thought they had when they moved here. Okay? And so always there's this sort of weird sort of shape-shifting thing going on where part of our motives are pure, and those are the motives we talk about, but part of our motives actually are our anger and bitterness that what? That Jesus has ordained the Christian faith in such a way that it grows by suffering. Okay? And that issue we have with God. Because that's God's economy. God's economy is the economy of the cross. That's God's economy. All right, you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said to Pilate, hey, you don't have any authority. Every authority you have to execute me has been given to you high. The offense needs come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. God has ordained the cross. Tertullian was an apologist of the early church, an early church father, the greatest apologist that the church has ever had. And when I say apologist, it's somebody who defends the Christian faith against pagans. So his primary apostolate was not teaching Christians, but interpreting and evangelizing the Christian faith to people who didn't believe it. He was an apologist, okay? And Tertullian is the one that you've heard the quote, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. 
So martyr's blood is the seed of the church, but it doesn't really make it in translation. But in Latin, it's actually the blood of the martyrs is the semen of the church. That's the Latin word. And all of a sudden, we're like, (laughs) whoa, okay, I get it. All right, moving right along. But that's because today we don't love fruitfulness in the marriage bed. And so anything having to do with sex makes us squeamish. But look, think about it this way. What Tertullian is saying is, when you have a man like Stephen in the church in Jerusalem who is killed because of his testimony to Jesus Christ, the church's belly swells. (laughs) Now that's beautiful. Come on, men, admit it. Ain't nothing more beautiful. There is nothing more beautiful than a woman bearing life. Nothing. Men, admit it. It is absolutely beautiful. It's hard. (laughs) It's very, very hard. And that's why we treat women well. And now we apply the beautiful picture that there is of Christ in the church, right? To Christ in the church. And God has appointed suffering and persecution in such a way that when we die, the church's belly swells And all of a sudden, and that day, 3,000 were added to their number. And the church has children. What does the Apostle Paul say again? The Apostle Paul says, I will remain in Ephesus. Why? For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, is what they scream. For hours the mob rioted. They were frothing at the mouth against the Apostle Paul. And all of a sudden, the church's belly swells, and there are many children. The door is wide, wide open for ministry. The actual quote of Tertullian is, he said this. He said, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. He says this. He says, you take a bush hog to us, and we're going to explode in growth. Now listen, do we love fruitfulness? Yeah, I think we do. I think we just have trouble. I I haven't known too many women who haven't had, what shall we say, a, 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 a diffident relationship with their newly discovered pregnancy. Right? Right? Anybody going to agree with me on this? You know? And this is one of the reasons I think it's so hard when a woman miscarries because so often women have a diffident relationship with their pregnancy. And so when they lose the child, the grief is sometimes bound up with guilt. 
I say this from having listened to a lot of women talk about their miscarriage. I'm not, okay. What about a church? Does a church have trouble with its growth? Oh, my. If you say no to that, you don't know anything about church growth. Why do most churches stay at about 70 people? Do you understand this? And so growth is a threat. You know the proverb that says that, uh, that a stall without oxen is clean, but it doesn't produce any profit. And that's often the case with churches. Churches that are small are small because they want it clean. And if you bring in people to a church that's been small for a long period of time, nobody likes it. And the reason is we decrease and they increase. The reason is they don't know that you guys sit there. Not anybody else. Then one Sunday, there's a family sitting there, and you're like, well, you know, on the one hand, but on the other hand, but on, one, but on the other hand, you know. Listen, who sits where in a church is pretty doggone important. There are a lot of fights in the church over who sits where. You're supposed to know. All of a sudden, the church gets pregnant and starts bearing children, and people sit in your seat. People park in your parking spot. Any of you have a parking spot? They park in your parking spot, and sometimes they will scrawl on the walls, and they will cut apart the pulpit Bible. This, you know, this happened in my church, right? It was a, it was a group foster home that all of a sudden started coming to church. <laughs> and it was quite the adjustment. Listen. God has written fruitfulness into the DNA of his world. And for anything to bear fruit, it has to die. Do you realize this? And a lot of the fighting over adultery in America today is whether a man is willing to love his wife as she dies. A lot of men don't want to have anything to do with their wife's death because of her children. And what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. This is true of the bride of Christ. Fruitfulness in the church is very difficult. And it does require suffering. I talk about who sits where and who uses what parking spot because that's a lot easier for me to talk about than to talk about transsexualism and being a witness against the sexual deviancy of, of Bloomington. Because it is Bloomington's economy. It's much easier for us to admit we don't like what goes on inside the church because then it's petty and we can laugh about it. But when it comes to us living publicly in this city, it is extremely difficult for us to face the fact that we could lose our job, that we can lose our degree, that we can lose our respectability, that we can lose our friends on Facebook because we're faithful to the Lord. But that is what Jesus calls us to. He says, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross. For the man that will save his life will lose it, but the man who will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. And so I said at the beginning of this, this extended exhortation, I said, it's coming. It's coming. 
And we have wonderful, wonderful heroes to point to. We have Stephen. But we also have what? We have the whole Chinese church. Think of the suffering of Christians in China. It's unbelievable. For decades, people in China have suffered. They have suffered the loss of life. During the Cultural Revolution, they have suffered the loss of uh, of position. They have had their children tell on them. They have had friends who were Communist Party members cut them off. They have not been able to go back to China because they got pregnant while they were here doing graduate study. Or they've gone back pregnant and have been threatened with abortion. There's real suffering in China. And what has happened to the church in China? Let me tell you, the church in China may have her problems, but she doesn't have the problems that the church in Africa has. I don't hear about the prosperity gospel taking China by storm the way it's taken Africa. It is having inroads. But you know something? Chinese Christians have been acclimated to the cross of Jesus Christ. And they have been faithful. If you want to read a great book about this, read the book God is Red. God is Red. Jason gave it to me a year or two ago, and it was a wonderful read. And one of the things that makes it excellent is that it's not written by a Christian. It's so interesting to watch him write about the humble, self-sacrificial growth of the church in China as he himself demonstrates his sort of shape-shifting on it. You know, you can tell he admires it, but he's not getting sucked in, but he admires it. And you, you just get the feeling you get done with the book that the end of the story of the author has not, has not been told yet. You know, like Bernard Nathanson and, and abortion. Uh, So we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. Or as it's popularized, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. David Carell, right before the second service, gave me a, a news item. And it's on the church in North Korea. And there's one story told about how a young girl was in her classroom and she was told by her teacher that she would receive a prize if she would go home and she would find a book and bring it to the teacher. So she went home and found a Bible. And so she brought it in and she got her prize, but when she got home, her parents were gone. Okay? And this is true of so many Christians across North Korea. The North Korean regime jails suspected culprits without trial. They often snatch up their relatives, and it doesn't matter whether or not their relatives have Christian faith. And they are known to punish families up to three generations. What do they do to them? Well, they treat them in the most awful ways, 
Defectors have spoken of Christians, I'm reading from the news item, defectors have spoken of Christians being crushed by steamrollers and being used to test biological weapons and hung on crosses over fires. What God has called us to in the coming days is to not allow the loss of profitability and position to silence us, but to be witnesses, to be witnesses. Martyrios is the Greek word. And that's where we get the word martyr from. Because if we're not faithful at the point of losing degrees and jobs, why would God give us the larger thing of dying? If we haven't been faithful in small things, why would God privilege us by giving us the ability of dying for the faith? Does that make sense to you? If we haven't been faithful in little things, why would God expect us to be faithful in big things? Quickly, bringing it to an end. The Apostle Paul says that he is going to stay there for a while and then come to them. And then he says, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with, with you without cause to be afraid. Timothy is young and Timothy is timid. Timothy, timid. Timid, Timothy. We know that because the Bible says at one point, Paul says to him, take a little wine for your stomach. We know it because the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that he should not let anybody look down on his youth. We know it because here the Apostle Paul says, don't, don't let him be afraid. So this was the personality of Timothy. Is this the personality of the Apostle Paul? No. Right? And so the Apostle Paul uses his strength to give Timothy an unlimited ability to use the gifts that God's given him. And in order to do that, he has to tamp down the people around Timothy so that Timothy can shine. He says, you know, don't, don't let him have any cause to be afraid, okay? For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. This is a very sweet thing. The Apostle Paul stands right next to Timothy and says, he's doing the work that I'm doing. He's doing the Lord's work. I'm doing the Lord's work. He's doing the work. Don't let him be afraid, okay? Very, very sweet. Very sweet. There's a lot to love about the Apostle Paul. Okay? Why does everybody hate him today? Then he says this. So let no one despise him. (laughs) That's an interesting statement. Let no one despise him. Now, do you despise any of the officers of Christ's church? Huh? I think every one of you would say, no, I don't despise any of the officers. And I'd say, oh, yeah, I'll bet you do. I'll bet you do. I'll bet some of them go down more smoothly for you than others. So who doesn't go down smoothly for you? Well, Typically, it's the guy that doesn't demand that you accept him, right? It's the guy that just kind of serves you and doesn't demand respect. That was what Timothy was like. So we as a church are always tempted to despise Timothys. 
And then I moved to the deacons and the elders. Don't despise the deacons and elders. And then I moved to the Titus two older women. Don't despise the Titus two women. If God has somebody love you and come to you and warn you and exhort you and admonish you, don't despise that. Yeah, they're going to get some of it wrong. Yeah, they're going to sin as they, as they warn you, <laughs> you know. Ah, yeah, but don't despise us. Because why? Well, because it's God's kindness to you that you have anybody in your life that doesn't just agree with you. Right? You all know that. You all know that everywhere else in life, basically, you get flattered. So, listen, this is what, the, this is what John Calvin says. He says, The Church of Christ ought to be concerned for the preservation of the lives of ministers. And by the way, all the, the, the pastors and elders, deacons, all of us are ministers, the older women. And assuredly, it's reasonable that in proportion, as an individual is endowed with superior gifts for the edification of believers and applies himself to it the more strenuously, his life ought to be so much dearer to us. Ah, Love all our pastors. Love our elders. Don't make our elders be the ones that bring the most food to all the small group meetings. So listen, don't despise Timothy. Show him your affection and love. Calvin says this, Here we have a charge that they may not despise him, perhaps because he was as yet of a youthful age, which usually draws forth less respect. He wishes them, therefore, to take care that there be no hindrance in the way of this faithful minister of Christ being held in due esteem, unless perhaps it be that Paul reckoned this very thing to be an evidence of contempt if they were not concerned as it became them to be in reference to his life. This injunction, however, appears to include something farther, that they should not undervalue Timothy from ignorance of his work. Let's pray.